Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is the first in a series of lectures by Sinclair Ferguson entitled The Doctrine of Sanctification. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to check out the full series on Canon Plus. Christ-likeness is central to sanctification because this is what grace inaugurates, this is what grace requires, and this is what grace produces. God, says the Apostle, has predestined us in order that we might be conformed to the likeness of his Son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So that men and women, of course, there and then, as he looks forward to the great day, but also here and now, might see in sinners like ourselves something that reminds them of Jesus, the family likeness to Jesus. Aren't you brothers? That's what people are to be saying, says Paul. Aren't you brothers of Jesus, somehow or another? And that, of course, will be consummated, thank God, when by the power at his disposal he transforms even these bodies of humiliation to be like unto his own body of glory. He is determined that you will be like him. And all of his grace is poured upon our lives in order that we may see how central likeness to Jesus Christ really is. And my brothers, we much need to think about that and meditate on it in our ministry, to glory in it as what God is doing in our own lives, but to seek it with thirsty hearts. Oh, Lord, if we're going to pray, oh, Lord, make me holy, then we need to see that that holiness must be defined in apostolic terms and not in our terms. Holiness means Christ-likeness. And it is not only set before us in Scripture as central, it's set before us in Scripture in some detail, in terms of its specific hallmark. I suppose if we were to have a little quiz and ask ourselves, now where in Scripture do we find transcripts of Jesus Christ's character? Most of us would begin to think about such passages as the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, the life of the kingdom man that is patterned on the life of the king in the kingdom, or 1 Corinthians 13, the hymn of love that is such a glorious expression of the character of the great lover. Or Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit which our Lord Jesus bore so magnificently and munificently in his humanity. But you know, more and more I have come to meditate upon that extraordinary thing that our Lord Jesus said about himself that must surely lie at the very heart of Christ's likeness because it was the one quality in himself to which he ever drew attention. 
Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you, learn of me. Because I am meek and lowly in heart. Isn't that an astonishing thing in the Synoptic Gospels? That that essentially is the only personal trait of our Lord Jesus to which he ever draws significant attention. It is as though he were opening his very heart to us and saying, you penetrate into the very depths of my being and this is what you will discover. You can come to me because I am meek and lowly in heart. The root of that, of course, is found and doubtless our Saviour found it himself in those great servant songs how he became meek in his humanity as he grew, is described, of course, in Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9. The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. And here is how that meekness develops. That meekness that is our humble submission to God when he speaks in his word and when he deals with us in his providences. Here is how meekness developed in our Saviour Jesus. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. What a picture of the Lord Jesus. Can you see him wakening in the morning with that Spirit, Lord? Speak, Lord, for your servant here. Submissiveness to God's word producing meekness of spirit. And submissiveness too to God's providences. As he goes on, the sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me. My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. That awesome sense that our Lord Jesus bows like a little child before his father as his father's providences which are unto our salvation are wrought out in the life of his own dear son so that as he stands condemned before Pilate the meekness almost undoes Pilate and undoes all who are around And so throughout his ministry, as Isaiah also reminds us, and as the gospel writers delight to notice, this meek one does not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he does not break. A dimly burning wick he does not quench. Meekness, gentleness. And I draw your attention to that, not simply because it is manifestly there in Matthew as the great leading personality trait of our Savior that will appear also in those who are becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus. And how one delights to see it in brethren as they go on and grow on. To see that increasing meekness as they walk with the Lord and become like the one with whom they live. 
but it's particularly important that we here draw our own attention to it because it becomes a recurring theme in the apostolic teaching about the way in which Christ-likeness appears in Christian ministry. As the apostle urges us by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, as the apostle urges upon the early Christians that the one who desires to be a bishop must be marked by this gentle meekness. Because he is to instruct with meekness and to correct with meekness. And that, of course, is simply another way of saying Christ-likeness. Well, Christ-likeness is central. And we need to desire more and more that our holiness will be like Christ's holiness. Now, how is that to be brought to pass? Well, it is here that this opening chapter of Peter's first letter is, I think, so especially helpful to us. Because among the many other things that Peter is doing in this chapter, one of the things he is manifestly doing is setting before the people of God some of the great motives that surround them, that will draw them out to desire sanctification and display to them the provisions God has to produce that sanctification in their lives. And I want, I know many of you will be tired from traveling, but I want to try and analyze this a little under a lengthy series of major headings, of which I think there are six. <laughs> what are the great motivations for sanctification? The first of them, to which Peter refers, is that this sanctification is the purpose of God the Trinity. You notice how he puts it in verse 2. The first thing he says after his greeting to them as God's elect, he speaks of them as those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And this, of course, is the Petrine parallel to the Pauline opening statement in Ephesians, that the divine purpose of election bears its fruition in our sanctification. He has chosen us not because we are holy, not on the basis of our faith, he has chosen us in order to be holy. Holiness is not the cause or ground of our election, as we constantly need to be reminding people. Holiness is the fruit of our election. And yet you notice that Peter does something very striking here. Paul does it in his own way as he weaves through those marvelous opening verses in Ephesians. But what Paul does in that rather subtle way, Peter does, in an almost blatant and frontal way, typically like Peter, you might say. He gets it out all in a one <laughs> And into this one verse, as it were, he squeezes the activity of the triune God, the Father in his foreknowledge, the Son 
as the one to whom we are to be obedient because we are the one, he is the one who sprinkles us with his blood and the spirit of God who works in us in order that we may be sanctified by him. And this is a marvelous thing for us to notice and always to remember in our frailty and our weakness, in our sinfulness, in those great struggles that we have in our personal growth and holiness, and no one knows them the way we know them ourselves, to pause and think as our faces seem to be rubbed in the dust by our own sin and by the world and by the wiles of the devil, to lift up our eyes to the glory of the gospel that tells us that God, the eternal Trinity in his infinite wisdom, has conspired in order that we might be changed from our present sinfulness to become like his glorious Son in his holiness. And all the energy of the Trinity for our salvation has been focused upon changing us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I am the object of the divine Trinity's fascination. That's what Peter is saying. I am the object of his gracious investment. Think of it. Do you notice how marvelous it is in this whole section that from the beginning of chapter 1 through to the beginning of chapter 2 there is a kind of, as the grammarians call, a kind of inclusio here. The idea with which the section begins is the idea on which the section reflects at the end. And at the beginning, Peter is speaking about these grand doctrines of the Christian life that seize hold of our minds and stretch them to the uttermost that we can begin to understand how vast is the plan of our salvation. And then he comes to the end and as he reflects on what God has been planning and purposing and effecting from all eternity, he says to these believers, and you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Isn't that marvelous? I suppose it is almost inevitable for us in view of the doctrinal convictions that we have as brethren and many of the polemics in which we find ourselves forced to engage. So the thought that God has chosen us from all eternity and planned and fashioned our salvation and our sanctification day by day, it's so easy for us to begin to regard these great things as simply weapons for our polemical warfare, but Peter will have none of that. No, he says, you lose touch with the reality of this teaching unless at the end you're able to say, oh, beloved, we've tasted that the Lord is gracious. We've feasted on these things. They've been manna to us. And that's what makes us so sad and grieved by the polemics and the battles in which we necessarily engage. That this has become the very bread of life to us. But when we are among brethren, it's good for us, isn't it, to remind ourselves that in all this we have tasted how gracious the Lord is. Our sanctification 
Verse 2 is the purpose of God, the Holy Trinity. But our sanctification in the second place, and here I'm thinking especially about what he says in verses 15 and 16, is not only the purpose of God, the Holy Trinity, it is the commandment of God, the Holy One. Look at what he says. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. You catch the sense here that Peter, in his latter years, has become a Christian who loves words, loves Christian words, loves using them in such a way that he can not only roll his tongue round them, but roll his mind round them. And he focuses our attention here on all the ramifications and dimensions of God's purpose of making us holy, just as he who called you is holy. He's not asking you to do something he's not doing himself. You say that to your children. I'm not asking you to do something that I don't do myself. You be holy because I am holy. It's a striking thing, isn't it, for all kinds of reasons. But what Peter is doing here is picking up a commandment. A commandment. He is saying to these early Christians, the great law that God set for his people in the Old Testament as an expression of his own character did not die the death in Jesus Christ, but was shown in all its glorious fullness. Nowhere more evidently in all the universe is it shown that God's commandment stands, you shall be holy as I am holy. As becomes so evident when his son has unholiness laid upon him, and God cannot abide to look upon his son as he bears the burden of our unholiness. But do you appreciate the richness of this command? What does it mean? How do we feel the weight of this command? It was, of course, the prophet Isaiah who most clearly felt its weight in the pages of the Old Testament. In that dramatic experience, when he felt himself undone and disintegrating, as a preacher of God's word felt that his tongue was unclean. You know that. Your people don't know you know that, but you know that. You know what it is when your tongue, from one point of view, has been ablaze with the glories of God, and you must have seemed to them as the one man in the congregation whose tongue was pure, and you have felt intensely, as Isaiah felt, that it's in the very gift that God has given you to use that your inner pollution is most clearly displayed to yourself. And he felt the weight of God's absolute holiness. I'm sure when he heard the seraphs sing their glorious anthem of the triune holiness of the triune God, he must have felt he'd never really been at church in his life. He'd never heard praise like this. He'd lived among a people of unclean lips. And their praises hadn't got beyond the ceiling 
as it were. But he had these themselves holy creatures singing God's praises and actually veiling their faces and veiling their feet. Holy, perfectly holy, though they were as though created holiness is almost on the verge of disintegration in the presence of uncreated holiness. But you see, like so many of God's attributes, there is more to the holiness that Isaiah saw in God than the fact that it brought him to the verge of disintegration. Because you must have noticed that the Holy One of Israel becomes Isaiah's favorite way of speaking about God. And isn't that one of the great paradoxes of faith in experience? That because our God is infinite in his glory, and yet one who condescends to us in his love, in every divine attribute as we explore it, and not least holiness, we find ourselves instinctively moving away, lest we be engulfed by such attributes in their perfection. His love does that to us when we really feel it. When we feel the intensity of it, it causes us to step back and say, Lord, I can't take such love anymore on my sinful soul. But it's very evident in Isaiah's experience that the holiness of God became not only a window into his own sinfulness, but a window, as it were, into God's infinite beauty and admirableness. And so he not only shrank back from God's holiness, he learned to delight in God's holiness, because he saw in that holiness infinite and perfect beauty. He saw what the psalmist calls, you remember, is it in Psalm 29, the beauty of holiness. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Listen to how it goes. Ascribe to the Lord, Almighty Ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Now listen how the psalmist exegetes that. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. Listen to this. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes, listen to this, he makes Lebanon skip like a calf. Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory, of course. Because they've never seen anything as beautiful as this. As the voice of God speaking. And when we begin to understand the holiness of God and find ourselves by faith attracted to it in such a way that we say, Oh Lord, make me some image of yourself in this beautiful holiness. When we are saying to him, Lord, make me someone 
who really does adorn the doctrine of God my Savior. Well, we understand why Isaiah loved to speak of the Lord as the Holy One, because he had never seen anything remotely approaching the beauty, the symmetry, the absolute perfection and balance and symmetry of God's holy character. And my brothers, that's one of the fruits of God's sanctifying work in us. He produces that kind of symmetry in our graces. That's what holiness is. It's not only possessing the graces, but it's having the graces put together beautifully. I was struck a number of months ago reading in Sargent's wonderful biography of Henry Martin, how one of Martin's friends said about him, oh, that people would say this about us, the symmetry, the balance, the symmetry of his stature in Christ was as surprising as its height. That communion which he had with God caused his face to shine. Holiness is not simply clinical correctness. It's that in us that so reflects the admirableness of God that others may admire his work also in us. But then notice, returning to what Peter says here, that there is a third grand motive for holiness. And it is, of course, the richness of the work of Jesus Christ. And he mentions this in verses 17 through 21. He says, for example, in verse 18, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect, chosen before the creation of the world, but revealed in these last times for your sake. That which is bound to evoke in us fresh desires for holiness is fresh insights into the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to recognize, my brothers, that this is an area in which we are so sadly deficient. I speak at least for myself. Paradoxically, we are able to use our imaginative powers in all kinds of aspects of our presentation of the gospel. We give much meditation as to how we will preach the law and how we will bring conviction of sin and how we will penetrate and give practical counsel to those who feel themselves to be bound by particular sin, and not nearly enough attention to dwelling on the richness of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, and meditating upon him. And this is what Peter is urging upon us here as he expounds what this means, obviously in terms of the greatness of Christ's identity. He is the very language he uses in verse 19. He is the one that it takes the whole of the Old Testament to explain. He is 
a lamb without blemish or defect. And it's not want enough to say, in order to understand Jesus, you've got to understand the Old Testament. He says, in order to understand Jesus, you have to move even beyond the beginnings of the Old Testament into the mists of eternity because this one who is a lamb without blemish or defect cannot be fully understood, nor do we see why we should love him and obey him so much until we realize that he was chosen before the creation of the world and then realize that he was revealed in these last times for our sake. You see, he takes us, at last, to three different scenes. The scene of Old Testament history in order to understand his significance as he appears on the scene of time. The scene of the eternal purposes of God in eternity. And then the scene of his work at Calvary revealed in these last times. And then, as though to add one final scene, he says, and it was all for your sake. All for your sake. The greatness of his identity is for the apostle foundation enough to bring us fresh desires for personal sanctity. Not only the greatness of his identity, the greatness of his redemption, Christ. In verse 18, you weren't redeemed with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. I suppose nowadays, certainly, if we were Americans, we would really want to say the priceless blood of Christ, wouldn't we? Priceless. Think of it. You and I have been redeemed with priceless blood. He has given up that which is priceless. For us who are worth, as Peter says, nothing. What have we been redeemed from? Verse 18. From the empty way of life handed down from our forefathers. If the love of Christ planned from eternity, hinted at in history, revealed in Calvary, Touching you by the Spirit. If the love of Christ is an insufficient motive to make us long to be the best we can be by the Spirit. Then God has nothing more to say. Nothing more to get. Then there is this fourth motivation. And Peter draws our attention to it in various places. In this chapter, let me draw your attention just to two of them. It is the richness of the Spirit's ministry. He mentions this, of course, in verse 2, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. But he goes on to mention it in various ways later on. For example, when he speaks about us being purified by obeying the truth so that we have sincere love for the brothers and are to love one another deeply from the heart because we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God, he is, of course, speaking about the work that the Holy Spirit does. And when he speaks, for example, in verse 4, about the inheritance that we have, 
he is speaking about the privilege that privileges that are ours later on described in verse 17 of by the Spirit calling on God as Father. And again at the end of the passage when he speaks about this desire for spiritual milk, he's speaking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, not only in illumining the pages of Scripture, but in creating in us the desire for that illumination. And so, although he does not always mention the person of the Spirit on the surface of this text, it is clear that so much of what he says in these verses is related to the style of the Spirit's ministry in the life of the Christian believer. As Paul puts it in those carnal verses in 2 Corinthians 3, it is he who is changing us from one degree of glory to another as we either behold or reflect the face of our Lord Jesus Christ as Hodge underlines in the pages of sacred scripture, as we gaze upon it and see our Lord Jesus in it, in order that the Holy Spirit may make us more and more like the one we come to trust and admire and love and obey. But then do you notice, fifthly, that the Apostle also underlines for us that the trials of life provide an encouragement to increase in holiness. He says in verse 5 that we are kept by the power of God. And we need to be kept because for a while, he says in verse 6, we may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And then he explains their function. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And here he is saying, in essence, that God's purpose in the afflictions which believers experience is always to polish their graces. The frictions of life are frictions that will produce shine, polish. He speaks about that again in a particular context in chapter 2 in a most beautiful way, addressing his remarks particularly to slaves, but presumably simply using them as a specific illustration of a general principle. To this, he says, this suffering you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his stead. The grammarians tell us that Peter's word here, for example, hupogramos, has partly an educational background kind of thing, perhaps. You experienced as I did when you were a little boy at school and the teacher sat down beside you and wrote the letters for you in one line and then left you for the next half hour feverishly trying to copy in the line below what the teacher had done in the line above. Light up and dark down and don't blot the paper. And nervously you went, light up and dark down and blotted the paper. <laughs> What was the teacher doing? She was leaving you an example. 
And what was Jesus doing, says Peter, in the richness of all that he was doing? He was also coming into this world and sitting where we sit and writing out a life of perfect holiness and coming to us as our teacher and guide and saying, now you do it the way I did it. That we might follow in his steps, leaving the footprints of human holiness in the world that we toddlers who follow behind might place our steps where he first placed his holy steps. And this, says Peter, is the way you're to understand your suffering. It's really the Lord Jesus coming and saying, now I'm with you. Take the next step. Take the next step. Because my Father's purpose in your suffering is a reflection of my Father's purpose in my suffering. That you, like me, might learn obedience through the things that you suffer. That my image might be reproduced in your increasing graces. And we know that as members of the Church of God and pastors of the flock. What, what a marvelous, sweet, humbling, joyful thing it is to meet old seasoned believers who shine, whose graces have been polished because in the midst of their affliction they've put their feet where Jesus first planted his feet. And don't we find in the marvel of God's economy that this is what happens in, in the midst of affliction. Yes, our afflictions, physical and spiritual, they show us our corruption and our sin, but don't they make us cry out, Oh Lord, oh Lord, make me more like Christ through this. I want to be an heir who suffers with him in order that I may also be glorified together with him. Bring the dross to the surface. As John Flavel so marvelously, afflictions have the same use and end to our souls that frosty weather hath upon those clothes that are laid and bleaching. They alter the hue and make them white. Oh Lord, alter my hue and make me white. And then finally, Peter points us to a sixth glorious motivation for holiness in the Christian life, in the glory that is yet to be. He puts it like this in verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. And earlier on in verse 5, we are being shielded for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this we greatly rejoice, even though we now have to suffer various kinds of trials. Of course he sees it, that the future judgment of God upon my life is a grand motive to holiness. But you'll notice that when he expounds this, 
He doesn't set the judgment of God before us as an awesome event that causes us to cringe in order that we may be driven into a legal hole in us, lest we find ourselves under the sovereign displeasure of God. He sees that great day largely as a day he anticipates with joy and faith. My brothers always does that. Faith looks forward to that grand day of judgment with a measure of unsurpassed joy. That was the way Paul viewed it. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. But when he speaks about what that means, he says, there is a crown of righteousness stored up for me, and not only me, but all those who love Christ's appearing. And I dare say we will not make much advance in holiness under this motivation until our faith discovers what that great day will hold of the ratification of divine grace. You remember how Jesus puts it in that parable of the pounds. When the master leaves his servants in charge of his financial resources and returns and calls them to account. And there's a man who is at ten and he's made another ten and a man who's at five and he's made another five. And there's this other man who had won do you remember what he says to his master? What he says, people will tell you parables of only one point. It's doubtless true, but those one points are multicolored. The man says, I knew you were a hard man. I knew your judgment would be severe. And so I cringed and I hid it in the ground and here it is. We remember those who in faith had risked their master's capital. Do you remember what he said? He was a man who was at five pounds and he's made five more. And Jesus says to him, you've done well. I'm going to put you in charge of five cities. Now you see the point? The point is that the judgment is related to the service, but the reward is out of all proportion to the service. All proportion. It's like him coming to you on that great day of judgment and saying, now let's take a look at your ministry. And if it's possible in his presence to cringe, you'll cringe, won't you? As I surely will. And your mind will go blank. Is there anything that he can find? And he will point to this one and say, you didn't know it, but it was really through your ministry that they were brought to me. And point to another whose letter to them was brought in the delivery just in the nick of time to bring them the encouragement they needed. With another person for whom you faithfully prayed and perhaps will die before seeing them converted. And if you can find only five good things to say about you, he will then say, in my new order, I'm going to make you mayor 
of New York. This is the new order. <laughs> Philadelphia. You could have Westminster Seminary. Orlando. You could have Disney World. San Francisco. And since you always enjoyed the banner conferences in Memphis, you can have Memphis too. And we will say to him on that day, Lord, what did I ever do? What did I ever do to deserve this? And he will say to us, Has it not yet dawned on you that it is all of grace? All of grace? All of grace? And if there is one last moment of regret, that moment of regret will say, Oh Jesus, I wish I'd seen that earlier. Because nothing would have so motivated me to serve you in holiness all my life than to be assured in the depths of my being that you really have saved me by grace. And so the end of the gospel, sanctification, takes us back to the beginning of the gospel. Grace. And we must never, ever move from this grace in which we stand because it will make us holy and make us like Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, our Heavenly Father, we feel ourselves such privileged men to have been laid hold of by Jesus Christ such privileged men to have been called into his sacred service. Yet we feel ourselves too to be such sinful men, wretched men that we are, we so often cry, and wretched is our ministry. And we find ourselves again this evening in need of sinking our lives and our service into your grace to be refreshed and renewed by its power and majesty, to have our eyes opened again to your utter and eternal devotion to us as our God and Saviour, to reflect on the priceless blood that Jesus shed upon the cross to make us holy. And in your presence as we bow, we confess that his love constrains us and we desire no longer to live for ourselves but for him who died for us and has been raised again. Oh, we pray, our Heavenly Father, that all the motivation that you effect in us by the ministry of your word in these days to be holier men we pray that it may last and bear fruit for Jesus' sake.
If you enjoy this episode, be sure to check out the full series on Canon Plus. Plus.